Hi, my friends. We really need your support to keep bringing these wonderful voices to you. If you find joy and solace in the podcast that we create, please consider clicking the button on the right side of the site. You know, that little button that says donate. Thank you for your kindness. My friends who listen to Future Primitive, it's been a couple of months since uh, we uh, we've done an interview, uh, Jose and me, and so I feel a little emotional about this, and um, I'm very happy to welcome David Kopak as uh, as a new beginning to Future Primitive. David Kopak works as a psychiatrist at Seattle VA in primary care mental health integration. In his clinical work, he has been developing a holistic health class and a hero's journey class using mythology, narrative, culture, poetry, and art to help veterans return home after military service. David is an education champion with the National VA Office of Patient Center Care and Cultural Transformation where he teaches whole health on VA staff across the United States. David has uh, lived in uh, Auckland, New Zealand. He is the author of Rehumanizing Medicine, a Holistic Framework for Transforming Yourself, Your, your Practice, and uh, the Culture of Medicine and Walking the Medicine Wheel, Healing Trauma and PTSD with Joseph Rael. David um, has um, taken uh, guidance and instruction from this man, Joseph Rael, with which he wrote this book. Joseph Rael's Tewa name is Tilu Koai, beautiful painted arrow. He is a visionary healer and an artist. He brings together in his person Southern Ute through his mother and Picuris Pueblo through his father. Those are his traditions, and he is a citizen of the Southern Ute tribe of the United States of America. He is the author of many books, including Sound, 
native teachings of visionary art, being in vibration, entering the new world, ceremonies of the living spirit, walking the medicine wheel, and healing trauma and PTSD. There's a lot more to say about both of them, and I especially would like to begin by asking David if there's anything you want to add about yourself or about Joseph Rael that I skipped so that the introductions would be shorter. Oh, um, I'll just say his name, his Tiwa name, yes. um, the pronunciation, yes. Um, Chlutekoe. Chlutekoe. So I, I may not be pronouncing it completely correctly either, but Tiwa is an interesting language. It's an oral language. So um, sometimes Joseph will write it down in different ways, and sometimes he just tells me, well, you're good at spelling. You just figure out how to spell it. Great. Great. Well, I... I feel very fortunate that I have been to the feast day at Picaris Pueblo and uh, been received and fed beautifully by the people there. Uh, that's wonderful. So if you would begin, David, speaking about perhaps your intertwined journey with Joseph Rael. Yes, so, hmm. I've been working with Joseph since October of 2014. And I'd first come across his books around the year 2000 in a bookstore. And I'd pulled a couple of his books off the shelf and read them and was quite struck by them. And then, you know, a number of years later, around in, in 2014, I found a, another book on a bookshelf. It was by Joseph's friend, Kurt Wilt, uh, called um, The Visionary, Entering the Mystic Universe of Joseph Rael. And Kurt talked about the hero's journey that Joseph was on. And, and that resonated with me because I was working with veterans with the hero's journey model. And so I wrote to Kurt and said, oh, you know, thanks for your great book. I really like Joseph's work. And, and Kurt said, well, I think Joseph might want to hear from you himself. Here's his email. And I emailed Joseph and um, he emailed back and he said, well, this is, I said, well, this is me. And he was like, well, this is me. I do this and this. And, and um, he said, well, why don't you come down? And I said, well, I'm in Seattle. And he said, well, I'm in the Southern Ute Reservation. And uh, I said, well, how long should I come down for? And he said, well, three days is usually good. So I came down for three days, not really knowing what I was getting into. I thought maybe I'd get a chapter on indigenous healing approaches for this hero's journey work I was doing. But instead, it's kind of um, hijacked my life in a good way and sent me on this detour of, you know, studying and working with Joseph. Um, you know, he moves back and forth between profound esoteric mysticism and, um, you know, almost slapstick humor sometimes. He's fun to hang around with, so... It's been quite a journey. So, what is the latest or one of the slapstick jokes you can remember? Oh, okay. Well, I suppose one of the first things, we were just kind of walking around, um, and, and he just, like, I hardly even knew him at that point. And he just turned over and looked at me and said, well, it's easy to tell. You and I are both crazy. You know, we both love life, and we're curious. 
And I was like, how does he know I'm crazy? <laughs> we just met. It's true, but you know, how does he know already? Um, and then, you know, another thing that he'd said on that same trip is he, uh, was talking to some park rangers. He took me to um, Aztec uh, Monument. And we were talking to some park rangers then, and he was introducing himself. And he said, some people, uh, they call me a medicine man. He said, I I don't know about that. I just work here. (laughs) Uh So what, how has it, talking about seed and growing, from um, growing from each other. Yes, yes. How would you, David, say that it's changed you mm. to know this man who uh, appears to me, because uh, uh, I'm crazy too, and I met quite a few people who, who would talk about being teachers, mm. uh, he seems real to me. Yes, yes. Uh, so, uh, how is your seed growing? What? Uh, how has he flowered your? How, how has he watered? Yes, your seed. Yes. It's a really good metaphor, and he talks about seeds and and growing in nature uh, a lot, and. One thing that he's doing right now is he's planting cottonwood trees. He's planted um, 13 of them in one place. He's just planted 14 of them in another place um, in the land that he's a steward of in the Southern Ute Reservation. And he's got plans to plant like 70 or 80 of these cottonwood trees. And they're used in um, the bear dance and other kind of ceremonial uh, uh, rituals that are done at the Southern Ute Reservation. So... And one of the things Joseph has said that we're working on a children's book right now for kids age 10 to 12, and we're calling it uh, a basket full of ideas for inventive minds. Okay. And so one of the final things in the book is to encourage children to go out and plant a tree, or if they don't have room for a tree to, you know, get some type of plant or living thing and to put that out there. Because for Joseph, the plants are our connection with the earth. And he talks about, as a kid, how he would just kind of commune with the corn and try to imagine what it's like to be a corn plant. Or he took me on a a vision quest to dance with the trees at uh, the first breaking of the moonlight over the horizon. So there's a lot of resonance with trees and seeds and plants. And I think in a way, you know, I had, when I was younger, I thought I would work on, on an um, Indian reservation with the, with the Indian Health Service. That was kind of my goal through medical school and residency. And I took a number of different detoured paths. And then all of a sudden, just through this chance email, I get connected with Joseph and I'm invited down. That was exactly what I wanted to do was to study and to learn uh, American in Indian um, spirituality and cultural views. And so Joseph kind of brought me into that. And so I suppose the seed somehow was planted, you know, years and years ago before I even knew of Joseph Rael. And yet that seed lay dormant 
for a long time. And then all of a sudden when it sprouted, it was like, well, it, it just went crazy. <laughs> it just started growing because <laughs> it had been ready to go for so long. Like I'd been building this template over the course of my life. And then, bang, you know, I met him and all of these different things kind of came together. So let's go to the previous book, Walking the Medicine Wheel. Would you, would you uh, begin by telling us um, what you have learned from Joseph Rael that a medicine wheel represents? Yes. And then how, because the subtitle is Healing Trauma and PTSD, how you feel it can apply to so many of us in a world, in the world that are traumatized. Yes. In a way, it's kind of the same question about the seed. Um, the word for circle or wheel um, and seed are similar in Tiwa. And so the circle is a seed, the medicine wheel is a seed. And one thing that Joseph taught me, we kind of wrote, we were writing the whole book. The book went through a couple different phases. We wrote this whole book. We started with veterans. And then Joseph kept telling me about all these interesting things. He'd say, go research Francis of Assisi. You know, I did a dance there. And then he's like, um, here, read this book on Pope Francis. And then he'd say, we need to put something in about extraterrestrials because um, the Pueblo peoples believe that we come from the stars and that the, the ETs are our ancestors. Um, so put something in the book about that. So I kept putting all these things in the book and all of a sudden we had this really interesting book and I gave it to the, the publisher and um, she said, well, this is an interesting book, but where's the book about the veterans? And I was like, oh, we got, we forgot, we got lost track of like why we started writing this book. And so then I edited a bunch of it out and said, okay, this will be for, for the next book, you know? And then finally at the end, Joseph said to me, he gave me this beautiful thing. He just called me up. He would call me up in the morning. Sometimes he'd wake me up and say, you know, Davidding. He, he always says that Tiwa is a verb language. So he puts things in verbs. Beautiful. So Davidding. Yes, yeah. Davidang, I had a dream. And then he said, God puts, or God holds back a place of goodness in everyone's heart. Huh. No matter what they do, no matter what they've seen, there's a place of goodness there. It's not that they lose it, it's that they forget about it. And in a way, that's like the seed going dormant. So it's kind of like, in the book then I was like okay I wish you told me that in the beginning because now I have to rewrite the whole book again <laughs> <laughs> you know the second time I understand <laughs> and and then to find that seed so like with redwoods I heard that with redwood seeds they need to be burned and scarred by fire in order for them to sprout so these big massive trees if the seed doesn't go through some type of trauma it never sprouts so there's this cycle and aspect of how suffering is necessary for growth and suffering is just one of the places on the medicine wheel. And if you reject suffering or you try to go reverse the wheel, that doesn't work. But if you accept the suffering and go through it as a trial by fire or an initiation, then that suffering actually leads into some type of transformation, something completely new. This is not a Christian concept, is it? And slash, uh, would you speak about 
investigating beyond religion or yeah. yeah. So I can say a, a couple things there. So Joseph grew up. He, he's interesting where he integrates in himself Catholicism, and he can speak, you know, kind of doctrinaire um, Catholicism and, and talk about the Pope and the saint statues that they had. And and you were at Picaris Pueblo for the feast day. At the feast day, they they bring the saints down to to watch the race, um, and then they take the saints back up to the church. And the race is ancient. The race is not Christian, but they've been able, they invite the Christian saints to come to the race, to watch this ancient race along the river. And so Joseph can move back and forth without seeming to trip over contradictions of developing um, a rich and sort of multi-palated spirituality that can take elements of Catholicism and Christianity and blend them in with elements of Southern Ute um, tradition and spirituality with Picaris Pueblo, as well as, um, you know, he was uh, initiated as a Sufi at one point by a, a friend of his and just a world religion, world spirituality that he has. You know, I think I haven't mentioned your latest book, did I? No. And so mainly the book that we're celebrating here is called Becoming Medicine, Pathways of Initiation into a Living Spirituality. And the book is written by David Coppa and Joseph Rael, Beautiful Painted Arrow. And uh, I think it came up, oh, it has the most beautiful paintings and illustrations. And uh, I think it came out very recently. Yes. Uh, How do you feel about that? Oh, it's great. I know it's great to have the book out there. And and it is beautiful. We we had a, a bit of trouble of like trying to get published. And we had about a year's delay where we ended up self-publishing, developing our own kind of press and self-publishing this book because we wanted it to come out in color. So we ended up doing two versions. There's a color version we call Art Medicine Edition and then a black and white edition that's much more reasonably priced. But you know, with Joseph's art, it's it just to see it in color, it's so much of the message is his artwork. We're so fortunate that you gifted us with uh, the art medicine edition, yes, of course, <laughs> and uh, and we will treasure it. So, I have a question for you, which which is developed in this book. What is it to be a true human being? Yes, so that's a term that Joseph uses. You know, true human being. Um, and when I I borrowed that term when I was uh, working as a uh, clinical director in psychiatric rehabilitation in New Zealand, and talked about what is it that we're trying to help people become? You know, what does it mean to be a true human being? And a lot of my work, Rehumanizing Medicine, is kind of what does it mean to be a true human being? How do we support the humanity of ourselves so we can meet the humanity of our clients? And walking the medicine in the wheel is after you have some type of trauma, you have soul loss 
or dehumanization, um, how do you go back to connect to that human goodness? So a true human being, I think in a way, there's multiple different models that talk about what it, what it is. But one thing I, I know for sure it is, is it's multidimensional. It's not just one thing. It's not just our bodies or our minds, you know, or even our spirits. It's some sort of complex amalgam and mixture of multiple different things. And what Joseph would say is that there's a paradox in, in describing what a true human being is. At some point he says, well, we don't exist. So, nayo tiawea, you know, we, we don't exist. At some point he comes to that, and the way that we become true human beings, from how I understand that, is to kind of let go of who we think we are who our past was, so that we can blossom anew. So in a sense, who we think we are is the dead plant from last year. It was blooming at some point, but now it's gone to seed. It stopped existing, and then when we let it stop existing, it bursts forth again, it blossoms forth. So it's becoming. A true human being is, is a process of becoming becoming medicine, because medicine is the power within us that allows us to be who we are, and it's the power that allows us to meet other people where they are, and the, the process or essence as well of what healing is, is becoming who you are. Joseph will say, we need to teach kids, they were already born a shaman, but they forgot it. They were already born with their medicine." What we need to do is help them remember that they already are their medicine. He says in English, English, the word medicine means something that has not yet happened or something that you need to get there. But in Tiwa, medicine is who you already are. So, so even if I'm what's called sick at this time. I'm medicine. Yes, yes. I get very emotional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's so beautiful. Okay, I'm sure the kind of people who listen to Future Primitive would totally understand. Um, do you you say this so beautifully in the book. The way I understood it is, we were born as medicine, and then, and then our whole life we develop the medicine that we are to 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 mix our medicine with other people's medicine. Would yes. you elaborate on that because that's so beautiful in a world where separation is the greatest problem we have. Yes, yes. So another thing Joseph says is that a human being is a medicine bag filled with sacred objects. And I started thinking, well, where's our medicine bag? He talks about the center of the medicine wheel is our heart. 
and I started thinking about, you know, as a doctor, the heart, what's the heart? It's a muscular sack. <laughs> so we've got a muscular sack that's a medicine bag. And, you know, what does the heart do? The heart fills and empties, fills and empties. The heart, life isn't just full, life is also empty. It becomes full by becoming empty, and it becomes empty by becoming full. And the heart accepts the worst blood in the body, the blood that's depleted, deoxygenated, worn out, and it welcomes that blood into the into its medicine bag. However, it doesn't just say, oh, woe is me, I always get the worst. It says, I receive the worst, and I non-attach to it. I let go of the worst. And so it lets that blood, the tired, deoxygenated blood, go to its buddy, the lungs. And then the lungs reoxygenate it, and the heart receives the best blood, the richest, most oxygenated blood. And it doesn't say, boy, after all that bad stuff I took, now I'm going, I deserve this, I'm going to keep it all. The heart gives that away. So with equanimity, it accepts the good, it accepts the bad. It transforms the bad into the good somehow. That's the mystery, you know. That's the mystery. How do you go from the bad to the good? But you know you don't get to the good unless you accept that bad in. And so the human being then being that medicine bag and that held back place of goodness, it, you kind of already have it. Whatever it is you're looking for, you already have it. And maybe what you need to do is become more empty. At some points of the journey, you become more empty. And so there's this paradox of existing and non-existing, and a paradox of being empty and being full, and a paradox of seeking and finding. So uh, when um, Joseph Rael says we do not exist, is he referring to vibration, music, sound? Yes. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. You know, light, we can think of light as a particle or a wave, and sound as a wave. And so that's why you know, being in vibration is, is one of his core books, you know, and that's something he'll say a lot of times is, you know, we're being in vibration. Rather than existing, we're being in vibration. However, then they'll turn around and say, well, when you're being in vibration, you're actually existing. But if you stop, if you're just trying to exist, then you stop being being in vibration and then you don't exist. So there's this kind of slipperiness to it of an ever, a continual becoming. And so when he talked about not existing, I thought that was very interesting. I hadn't come across that in American Indian or Native American spirituality before. You know, I knew about it more from Buddhism and Hinduism. Mm -hmm. And so I turned to some of those different traditions to try and see, is there some sort of universal principle here, some universal um, spirituality? And one of the things that Joseph talks about a lot is dark matter, dark matter and dark energy. This 95% of the universe that we can't see, but that influences the 5% that we can see. And so I started to think about that, about dark matter and, and light matter and um, existence and non-existence. Come on, tell us more. <laughs> more, okay, okay. Um, and so with dark matter, and then so Joseph talks a lot about ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. And that 
the thing we want to do, and this is where it does start to resonate some with Christianity, is to go back to the garden. That we can go back to the garden at any moment uh, and be rejuvenated. Or then he sent me on this wild goose chase of, of um, Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth. He's like, put something in the book about Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth. But the Fountain of Youth is this, it's kind of a myth, you know, people Historians don't think Ponce de Leon really was looking for the fountain of youth, but the myth about it is this place of rejuvenation, this place where you're always in a process of becoming. And oddly enough, you have to go into dark matter or non-ordinary reality or non-existence to replenish, like going back to the creative void and then bringing that back. And that's like the hero's journey, leaving the known, going into the unknown. It's the mystical process of going from the isolated, separated individual and ego to connecting into the non-dual, unitary experience of mysticism and then bringing that back. So it's a continual, and that's the medicine wheel, it's the continual cycle. You, you're an ordinary reality and then non-ordinary reality, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth like the heart beating how many times does the heart beat that's how many times we go in and out of existence every minute yeah i personally liked uh, like and like uh, richard Bach's books very very much i mean they certainly touched a place in me I forget, especially that one book where he talks about uh, going dreaming and going into into space with his partner, going into into the universe, and uh, he made me believe in his writing that 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 was possible, and uh, that felt huge to me. That uh, even with all the the um, chemical and non-chemical medicines that I have taken, uh, the idea of uh, being able to travel uh, through the stars and it's, it's a marvelous idea. So I'm yes. just playing with you if you'd like to say something about that. Sure. Yeah, so Richard Bach's Illusions was a book that I carried around for years and, and, and read and reread. And so that idea of illusions, that was bringing it into a more of a Christian framework, you know, bringing the idea of that all of this is kind of a marvelous, um, divine, sacred play, uh, kind of like a Maya or a Lila, you know, bringing this into, into a play and that there's, there's meaning in it. But the meaning is in the doing of it rather than, um, you know, trying to get to some particular place. And I love that book. I love the idea of like, you know, Richard and, and Donald Shimoda, like Richard following Don around and his ambivalence about, you know, this Messiah and, you know, whether this guy's crazy or he's not crazy. And then finding the Messiah's handbook and like just thinking this is so great to have this Messiah's handbook and um the, the sort of play of like whether the knowledge you have in the handbook, whether the wisdom can really be put in a handbook or not. Um, so, I yes, mean, so Richard Bach. 
Yes. Sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just thinking that none of our younger listeners are going to oh know what, what we're talking about. Um, so maybe, just at that point, you don't think it, that no, we could say that about the whole thing. So one, thinking maybe you and I can have, have virtual tea and talk about it right. back. Right. Um, well, one time Joseph said to me, he's, he was just giving me, you know, some sort of esoteric nugget. And then he said, okay, hold it right there. There's something going on here that we're never going to be able to explain. And, and I like laughed in my mind and said, okay, that's how we just end the book, right? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we should even start the book that way. <laughs> oh, that's so excellent. You know, I was writing a piece yesterday and, uh, and, and, I say very kindly to myself, I had the arrogance to think I could write about what I thought God was. Who knows what it was like three o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, you know what I mean? (laughs) And I, I stopped after three sentences and I said to myself, wait, wait, there's something here. So we're never going to be able to explain. <laughs> That's so so wonderful. But then he kept talking. After he said that, I was like, okay, well, that seems definitive. But he's like, okay, now that we've said that, now we can actually start getting down to business. Yeah, now we have a whole book to write. <laughs> so let me ask you about spiritual democracy and... Mm. Slash mother democracy, I guess. Yes. The reason this book is so long, originally I thought of it as, you know, becoming a mystic, becoming a visionary, becoming a shaman, and about initiation. But the reason this book is so long is because of our current political situation. And I felt that we had to address this in some way. And we had to figure out, so once you go to initiation, you... You're empty, so you're seeking. You, you're in longing, and you're seeking, you're seeking. You find something, you become filled with something. It may not be what you thought it was, but you become fulfilled, and then you become overfull. And when you get fulfilled to the point that you become overfull, you spill out your medicine to others. And so part three of the book, you know, the, the three parts are seeking, which is like separation in in the initiation framework, seeking. Then the middle part is finding and receiving, which is the initiation part. And then the um, third part is giving or returning, you know, returning to society and the hero's journey. And so I wanted to have things that were practical and addressed politics, the environment, um, relationships in the world, that it had to come around full circle in some way. And because the time that we're living in, the book had to speak out for bringing a non-dualism, a non-dual perspective into everyday world. And so one of the things we say in the book is that illness is separation. Separation is illness. Um, healing is reintegrating is wholeness is coming back together 
And one of the things that Joseph said in, in Walking the Medicine Wheel was, we should have all veterans do their DNA testing so that they can like do National Geographic or something, and they can go back and see, oh, we all come from Africa. We're all brothers and sisters. There is no us and them. It's just us. And in this book, my conception was, we need to go beyond us, even. You know, we, we need to go to just one, oneness. And from that perspective, you can't have war. You can't have violence from a perspective of oneness. And that's part of spiritual democracy. So um, Stephen Herman, I think, is where I first got that term, spiritual democracy. And I think he got it from Walt Whitman, actually. Um, so he's written some about Whitman and shamanism and spiritual democracy. And so we wrote about that idea of um, like what's missing in democracy. It's kind of what's missing in healthcare as well as the spiritual element. The, the human spiritual element is missing in healthcare. It's missing in economics. It's missing in democracy now. So how can we bring in a spiritual democracy? And Joseph says that there's a um, kind of a, a sky city that's above the city, that everything exists in, in ordinary reality. Up above it, there's something in non-ordinary reality, and we need to go up there and to bring that down so that spiritual democracy exists in a kind of archetypal template form. And we've touched that at different points in our history as a country of spiritual democracy, and we've also done the opposite of that. You know, we've done... Um, some things that aren't spiritual and aren't democratic in our country as well. Hmm. Uh, the way that we brought African people over as slaves, the way that we uh, committed genocide against the indigenous people of the country. Um, and now we've just, we're in a, in a phase of so much divisiveness and separation. And it seems like the medicine is there's no separation. We're not separate. Not only are we brothers and sisters, but we're all one. And the spiritual journey is a very practical journey. The spiritual journey is a political journey. And this is something you don't hear very often because we think about the person who goes off to the mountain top and, you know, achieves bliss or enlightenment. But then at some point they come back. You know, the Buddha achieves enlightenment and he, he teaches others. Even Nietzsche's Zarathustra, he goes up to the mountain and he comes back down because he loves humanity and needs to, he's over full. He needs to come back and spill out his teachings. And so then spiritual democracy. So then I, I started thinking about, I kept reading about the founding fathers, the founding fathers, the founding fathers. And I was like, Joseph's from a matriarchal country, uh, um, culture. So I was like, where are the founding mothers? And I thought, well, there's a couple of them, you know, Abigail Adams and, um, you know, Martha Washington and a few of those those people. But I was like, you know, where are the the refounding? Because then I came like on Gerald Arbuckle's term, refounding. So Gerald Arbuckle, uh, I've met him once uh, and we uh, email back and forth sometimes. He's a Catholic priest and a Ph.D. anthropologist. And he's written a number of beautiful books about the culture of healthcare about fundamentalism, about loneliness. Um, and one of his key ideas is this idea of refounding, that organizations periodically 
um, lose their way, we could say they cease to exist or they cease to have a living spirituality, a living vitality, and they require a refounding individual who can then go back to from where the organization is, go back to the roots, <clears throat> drink from the fountain or you know, go back to the garden, bring that back into the current world and rejuvenate and modernize this organization or movement. And so Gerald talks a lot about that uh, a lot with Christianity, but with democracy as well, we periodically lose our way and we need rejuvenation. We need to be refounded. And so I started thinking of the refounding mothers of democracy and who are some of these people. And so the first person who came to my mind was Rebecca Solnit because she's helped me come back from New Zealand and, and reimagine myself as an American again. I was like, wow, there's some great things about being American, just the way she writes and, and the people she, she writes about and the environment and all these different things. I just really love Rebecca Solnit's writing. And um, then I thought about Anushka Shankar, who um, has done so much work worldwide to speak out against violence against women um, and violence against oppressed people. And how she brings together this global citizenship, you know, she was actually, um, from what I've read, that she was a homecoming queen in California, and yet her father's Ravi Shankar, and she's done all this world music. And then the ultimate refounding mother of democracy, uh, Mother Earth. <sighs> and Mother Earth, you know, her initials, if you just look at what are Mother Earth's initials, M-E, me. <laughs> okay, I like so it. So in that way, we all have to be the refounding mothers of democracy. Yes, yes. And different belief systems in this country seem to be bringing up tremendous, I mean, turning up tendencies to violence. I mean, I detect it even in myself. Uh, and um, so what would you and Joseph Rael say about, I mean, it's an old, old, old story where we have been killing each other for territory Uh, of a, of a just purely intellectual belief systems, which I'm beginning to understand a little bit. Yes. One thing Joseph said quite often to me is, I am my brother's keeper. And I knew it was a biblical reference, and I went back and looked at it. The first recorded murder in the Bible Um, is when Cain killed Abel. And God says to Cain, where is your brother? And Cain says, how would I know? I'm not my brother's keeper. And so when Joseph says, I am my brother's keeper, he's circling back on the medicine wheel, all the way back in the biblical framework to neutralize the first murder. When we say, I am my brother's keeper, we're neutralizing the first murder. And so in walking the medicine wheel, that's something that, that Joseph says, I am my brother's keeper. 
And then we go from that, from us being brothers and sisters to us being one. And there's a point I wanted to circle back to there Mm -hmm. with violence. We are very good in our culture. We are experts in separation. Charles Eisenstein talks a lot about this, about separation culture and the, the foundation of separation in our technology and all of our different systems. Um, we are very good at training people to go to war. And one of the things I'm trying to do at the VA is to train people to come home to peace. Because in general, I'm, I'm pretty much of a pacifist. I work with a lot of veterans. I understand World War II. It'd be hard to, to, there's certain situations like World War II with all of the fascist genocides going on. You know, could you be a a pacifist then? I'm, I'm not sure. But in general, I'm mostly a pacifist. But I think that's okay in working with veterans because what veterans need is they don't need a psychiatrist who help, can help them in a war mentality. They need a psychiatrist who can help them come home to peace, to find peace in their hearts and peace in their minds. And ironically, we send people into combat saying that they're winning over the hearts and minds of, of others, you know, with guns. Um, and then, but they come home and ironically, they don't have any, any peace in their own hearts and minds. You know, that's because you can't bring peace with a gun. So they bring this war mentality back. And it's not just about symptoms or post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or, or having a psychiatric problem. It's having a moral orientation problem. It's having a war problem that's not balanced by a peace mentality. And so in a way, working with veterans, I think if we can work with veterans to help them come from war to peace, we're tipping the balance in this country and tipping the balance in the world of bringing some people back, people who may be lost souls, who um, are stuck in violence, aggression, separation. And they protect our country. They go to war for our country. They enter into a mindset of separation where there's us and them and, you know, the good guys and the bad guys. But when people come back to this world, we can't have a functioning democracy if everyone's thinking I'm the good guy and you're the bad guy. That's not a democracy. So how do we go to we all have that goodness in our heart and we're all doing the best we can to bring that goodness out into our heart? And if I see you and you're suffering, how can I help you connect to that goodness in your heart? How can in my being medicine spark in you some resonance where you remember, ah, I'm medicine too. There's a story in um, the chapter with spiritual democracy, I think, of, um, of Hiawatha. And it comes through some books. I apologize if anyone thinks it's not my tradition to tell this the story of Hiawatha, but it, it is so beautiful. And and also there are some some people who think that the great law of peace of um, the the Iroquois uh, Confederacy that that um, was one of the the inspirations for our own um, constitution that it influenced some of the early founding thinkers of democracy. But there's this view or the scene that happens. So Hiawatha is a depraved human being in one of the narratives of of the story of bringing the great law of peace. He's a depraved human being who's a cannibal. And one day he comes home 
and he's got this pot where he's going to throw this body into and cook it. And the great peacemaker, the spiritual divinity, has come down to bring the great law of peace to humanity. And he has crawled up on top of Hiawatha's um, house and is looking down the, the chimney, the open chimney space, and Hiawatha looks in the um, you know, this, this cauldron where he's going to stew this person, and he sees a reflection. And it's the reflection of the div- divine, you know, um, great peacemaker up above. But he looks at it, and he thinks it's his own face. And he says, oh, my gosh, I've never seen this before. I've never seen this divinity and beauty within myself. Um, and he takes a look again, and, and it's there, you know, this divinity and beauty that he sees uh, this reflection of great peacemaker. And then he goes into despair. He's like, I have been doing terrible things. I have been, I haven't been being a true human being. I've been living a life of an animal. And then great peacemaker comes down and consoles him and says, you know, you've seen this thing in yourself and it can be true. You can help me usher in the great law of peace. And it's beautiful too, because the person who ushers in the great law of peace, the human being who does that is the person who has known the opposite of peace, who has lived in separation and war and predatoriness and to be able to go from predatoriness to peace and bring that to the people. It's such a beautiful story. Reverse narcissism. Yes, the mirror mirror transference. He has a mirror transference of the great peacemaker and sees that in himself. But he, he is also seeing a truth within himself. He's seeing that beauty and goodness within himself because Joseph Rael says, you know, he has that goodness in his heart. He just has turned away from it. He's not seeing it. Beautiful. I feel this might be a good place to stop, Uh, but I want to um, keep the conversation open in case you would like to think for a moment, feel for a moment, and uh, uh, there's anything you would like to say in closing. The only thing that comes to mind is there's something going on here that I'm not even going to try to explain. <laughs> and now let's go on for five hours. <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. This has been a long time in coming. It's been quite a journey. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's been quite a journey. It's been a wonderful, wonderful visit. Yeah, same for me. Same for me. Thank you for your time and presence. Well, we walk together. Yes, yes. <laughs>